the Koigig part. I mean, Arsenal already looked like they had three extra players. If they don't do anything really stupid or get a lot of injuries, I think they should be winning the league realistically. And subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Always good to bring in Mr. Matt Williams. Hello. Oh, Joe, it's been a long time since we've spoken, mate. How are you? Very well. I was just thinking the same thing. You still look fantastic. <laughs> I don't know about that, mate. The years <laughs> are moving on, but I'm, I'm above ground, which is the main thing. I'm, I'm in good form. I'm in good form. Good. Uh, so I might take you around the houses a bit, a little bit, and get your uh, broad thoughts on different things, if that's okay. The rugby championship has concluded. So at the weekend, we had South Africa 38, Argentina 21. We had New Zealand 40, Australia 14. So after six games played and uh, conclusion ensconced, we have New Zealand 19 points, South Africa 18 points, Australia 10, Argentina 9. I suppose the headline news is that Ian Foster has gone from immense pressure, dead man walking territory to turning it around somewhat. He's won his final three games and uh, weird to see New Zealand top of that table after everything. You always won it two years in a row, Joe. It's uh, I, I think the thing to keep in mind with New Zealand when they lose is the panic that surrounds the the <laughs> the astounding uh, outcome that they do lose. And I think Irish rugby can take a lot of credit in that. Um, you know, they played them four games since last November and won three. And um, uh, a lot of the, the residual problems, in my opinion, from New Zealand rugby was how Ireland absolutely rocked their confidence. Now, that's still a very good New Zealand side. It's full of great players. And when they put it together, um, they are still a, a force to be reckoned with, as they showed in the championship. What we've seen from New Zealand, though, which we're not accustomed to, is errors uh, that they just didn't make before and a, a lack of precision where they were the most precise team on the planet, uh, probably now challenged by the French in that uh, category. But they, I think anyone that writes them off and, and suggested, oh, they're finished because of the losses they've had, I, I think that is a, a gross exaggeration. And they proved that in the championship again. Because some of the recent talk was almost, well, here's hoping Foster survives through to the World Cup because we'll almost have their number territory. Yeah, I've I got to say, Joe, I... I you know, I didn't agree with a lot of it. I mean, let, let, let's put it on two two categories. The attacks on Ian Foster were just completely and utterly um, indefensible. They were, they were attacking him personally, his physique, you know, the things that should not be mentioned. And I thought it was a disgraceful uh, episode in New Zealand rugby and didn't bring any credit on the New Zealand media or the rugby community or the NZRFU that really left their coach and their team out swinging. And I thought that was really, really poor stuff. And let's give Foster a lot of credit. He's conducted himself with great dignity. He's never once uh, asked for mercy <laughs> and, and never once blamed anyone else. He's taken everything on himself. Now, they did change their coaches. Whether that was forced on him or not, I'm not sure. No one is really 100% on that. But he, he's kept his dignity the whole way through. And if the team didn't believe in him, they certainly wouldn't have played the way they did at Ellis Park. And then they certainly wouldn't have played they, the way they did in, in, in some of the matches, the second uh, Argentinian test. The fact they lost some games, I think, is more a um, recognition of how far the other teams have come. 
they've certainly caught up. The gap between the top 10 or top eight teams in the world is certainly um, marginalised or minimised in the last 12 months. And the other aspect is, the thing is that, again, New Zealand were really had their confidence rocked like I have never seen it before mm. by the loss to Ireland. And uh, rather than people diminishing the value of that win, I think we should be saying how great it was because it, it, to, to rock the confidence of the great New Zealand rugby union side is not something that happens very, very often, and Ireland did that. So in recent weeks, have they tidied up the sloppiness and the lack of precision that we would have seen against Ireland, for instance? It's an interesting one, um, Joe, because against Argentina in in the first test when they lost, no. Against South Africa in the first test when they lost, no. But then in, in the subsequent second test at Ellis Park and uh, um Back in New Zealand for the second test against Argentina, they were incredibly precise. Last week at Eden Park, as they always are, they were beautifully precise again. Mm. And you could, couldn't uh, help but admire the way they played. And then against Australia in the first test, uh, that were, it ended in such controversy. When Australia were down to 13 men, New Zealand once again were really imprecise. They had four or five occasions where they had two and three men overlap, so they should have scored tries when Australia were really on the ropes and they didn't take them through poor passing and poor decisions, which, again, is not something that we historically have associated with New Zealand sides. So I think it's still a mixed bag, Joe. I I don't think it's – we can say the pendulum's gone completely one way or the other, but they're still winning championships and picking up trophies while not playing at their best. And that should be that should worry all of us, you know. If they do play at their best, you know, they're they're still a very formidable group of people. Yes, New Zealand in crisis as they win the rugby championship is um, the headline here. It's a crisis we'd all like to share at certain times. We'll see them from afar across November. They play Japan, Wales, Scotland, England. Ireland obviously will welcome Australia and South Africa to Dublin. So what of South Africa then? Is it just uh, same old stuff? We know what they do, but they do it very well and they're very big. Joe, I wrote it down here. Uh, They had a pushover try from a scrum. Three tries from Malls, two of which were penalty tries, and then they scored a nice try just after full time um, and a 55-metre penalty goal. Mata was, it was, you know, that looked, and I know the South African supporters get cross at me, but it is hugely effective and it takes a lot of skill to, to do those Malls. I'm not taking that away from it, but wow, it's, it's horrific, horrific on the eye. It's, it's, not, it's not pleasant to watch. Um, there is, they, it is very smart and very efficient and they do it exceptionally well but it is a horrid, horrid game plan to, uh, for, the, for the good of the game um, Ireland will show much sterner stuff and, and I, the one other part on that Joe it really didn't reflect how close Argentina were to them uh, again I wrote down here at, at the 72 minute mark was 24-21 uh, South Africa were in front so Argentina were not out of that match at any stage until the 80th minute when they ran in that other, the, the last try, which, which sort of made the scores look a lot more lopsided than they were. So they have Australia have beaten them um, and South Africa, uh, and sorry, New Zealand have beaten them. And I think Ireland at home, depending on who the South Africans can pick with their French players, we're not sure on where they stand with those. Ireland, that would should be a really great contest Ireland will play really attacking positive rugby and we'll have the socks board off us by how the Springboks played. So I'm not sure how 
how that's going to pan out as a spectacle, but it's certainly going to be very interesting. Yeah. And when it comes to size differential, because at the moment, I think if you were to chat to the Irish uh, rugby fan over here, they would almost say, well, look, strange as it sounds, we might prefer New Zealand in a World Cup quarterfinal over South Africa, you know, given our, our recent history at New Zealand, but also more than anything because of this uh, nagging sense that we can't really compete with the South African power. Yeah, I, I, there's reality to that. Though. South Africa do play a power game. There's no two ways about that. Uh, and they're very, very good at it. And, it, and again, it's highly effective. The, the thinking on it, the, the way they limit the um, the ability or, or the, the opportunity for them to make mistakes. So that's that's really what that game plan is about. It's very hard for the South Africans to make mistakes when in possession. And they have a very powerful rushing defence where they compact their line so they don't fill the field, they compact it and come forward. And it is annoying and it's difficult and it's aimed at stopping teams that like to run the ball, which is what Ireland would do. I think the, um, and I, I'm sure Andy Farrell and his staff will have already done this, the way Australia played them in Adelaide, I think, is the answer. And that was a beautiful day, dry, beautiful pitch, three o'clock in the afternoon. And that's, that didn't suit South Africa. And that you could say the same for Ellis Park. Beautiful uh, evening in Ellis Park at altitude, which is definitely a negative for, for the New Zealanders, but that, that altitude is also very dry. And it allows you to play expansive rugby. And they don't like that. The South Africans do not like that one bit. If, and especially teams that are good at it, like Ireland are um, and, and the New Zealanders are. But on a wet day, wow, they are going to be. If it's raining in November, it's advantage to just Springboks. They are so hard to beat. I, look, I, I don't know that I'd say I prefer to play South Africa or, or prefer to play New Zealand. They're both great at what they do. Mm. They do. The, the, I think the point is... Um, Ireland uh, are not fearful, not fearful of this. Australia are not a big side. You know, up front, they're not giants. They're, they're Like all rugby sides, they're big enough, but they're not giants. And they took them on and took them on really well. Yeah. So this is not beyond uh, the Irish pack's capabilities. Um, you have to be at your best and you have to be smart and, and things have to go your way. But it's not beyond Ireland's capabilities to take on their pack and to dominate them. Okay, interesting. And one last one on that. Would you subscribe to the theory that come World Cup moments, you know, tournament rugby, when the pressure is on, that that South African brand of rugby, when there are nerves and there is tension, uh, requires far less of the players as opposed to maybe an Irish or New Zealand style where things have to be in sync and there has to be a certain degree of flow maybe to execute. Maybe we, we, we've talked about this with Leinster, for instance, mm. of late, that when you get to the finals and those, those tough knockout games, yep. you, as a coach, you might look at the South African game plan and say, well, do you know what? Even a nervous bunch of players have a damn far better chance of implementing that. Uh, it's a very fair comment, Joe. Uh, and the problem with that is when you have two teams that take that attitude, you end up with the Lions series from oh, 2019, yeah. which was, <laughs> Jesus, mate, you know, really? That, I, that did such I, harm to the game, that tour, genuinely. Mate, I'd rather paint the kitchen than watch that again. It's, it was horrific. You know, and as, as the great Willie Anderson said to me, he was inspired by the Lions in the 70s as a kid watching it. And he said, what inspiration did that bring? And, and that's the problem with the South African game. Uh, you know, the, and again, I don't want to offend the South Africans. I'm just, I, I'm just talking about the game. I think as I get older, I'm more, I'm more, I'm more concerned about the game than, than the nations within the game. I want to see the game prosper. And that game plan is just awful, you know, but it is highly effective. And let's, let's just spin back a bit. South Africa weren't in the 87 World Cup. They were still in isolation uh, and they weren't in 91. 
So they came in 95, basically the same game plan. So 99, Australia beat them in a semi in the last second. Stephen Larkham did a drop goal and they had a guy called De Beer drop kicking goals and place kicks from everywhere. They played a similar game plan and they've done it right through. They won in France in 2007. They didn't, they didn't do it well. They didn't have the personnel in 2011. They've played the same game, a giant pack of forwards, a really dominant kicker at 10, and that's – you know, and a really tough defensive group. The hard part for South Africa, they got the best centre pairing in the world. You know, Luke Am and, and Dion, they're fabulous players. They're back three. You know, when they've got Chisel and Colby and Mapipi, these guys are incredible athletes uh, with Faf de Klerk at nine at times or, or Hendricks or whatever it happens to be. They're really quality players. They could play a wonderful game plan. They choose not to. And I suspect, Joe, for the reasons that you've just put out there. And, yes, it is really, really hard to beat. And in the pressure of, of those big games, it is so simple and highly effective. And so, so that, and now here it is. Well, if this was basketball or American football and we were getting these horrific games, they'd change the laws. Yeah. And we don't. So they still allow – like, let's just pick a couple of really simple ones. You must have three recognised backs on your bench. So it stops South Africa from picking six forwards. So that, that forwards only play half a game except for two guys. Mm. Like, like, let's change that law. That doesn't change much. It just changes a little bit. Let's just say then you can only replace at halftime in the 60-minute mark. So you can't get the South African forwards fatigued because they use their bench within the laws of the game so well. Mm. And, and the mall, you know, look, what if we said, what if we said, okay, the, the mall has now got a bit of line-outs and scrums uh, set five metres out, they set 10 metres out. So you can't maul five metres in. So you, you just do some things to discourage this horrific game plan. But, of course, World Rugby, you know, as I said, they're like the statues on Easter Island. They just sit there with faces and don't say anything, and we don't get any any movement on them. And, and, the, and the South African game plan will continue to be highly effective until they change laws. No chance of you putting on a suit and tie and getting a job at World Rugby, I suspect? Mate, I would, would love to do that um, you know look there's got to be a reason why Joe Schmidt left after such a short period of time and that's because he didn't feel he could do things Phil Davies is, is, is a great guy I've known Phil for 100 years uh, I played against him he played for Clonethley I coached against him uh, you know when I, he, he's a wonderful human being and he's taken over that role and I haven't spoken to Phil I don't, I'm, I'm not saying anything from the inside but I suspect that that role is, again, just so frustrating because of all the things that need changing and want, and, and I, I would imagine he wants to change, yeah. just get caught in this political washing machine and, and no, nothing seems to be able to get done. Even when they appoint a, a specialist body to recommend um, changes to laws, they go against them. That's why you have in Super Rugby now, um, and I, we haven't spoken about this, Joe, I don't know if you mentioned in the show. No. All, all the Australian and New Zealand um, coaches and administrators got together for a conference and they have come up with their own law changes uh, that they're recommending for the tournament. Those law changes, I only read today, that in Queensland they're, they're proposing next year that the club competition play them, which is stop clocks on on uh, scrums, so you have to pack the scrum in a set period of time, that, that the... Uh, off the, the ridiculous yellow cards for going for an intercept, you get yellow carded, that's gone. And there's about five of these simple changes that everyone in world, in world rugby, except the people running it, want to see changed. So when you're actually getting the competition saying we're going to change the laws because people who are supposed to change the laws 
are incompetent or are immovable because of political paralysis, you know you've got a problem with your government body, and that's mm. exactly what's occurring. Mm. That's a great insight. Uh, very frustrating, though, I must say. Oh, hugely frustrating. Hugely frustrating. And, and, and don't get me started on referees, Joe, because the refereeing over the championship has been nothing short of appalling. Uh, and not cheating, not not in any way saying the and not blame the referees for making bad decisions. There's just 26, 27 penalties a game. That game in Adelaide that I just spoke of, the ball was in play for 28 minutes out of 80. Mm, like terrible. how how can you how can you justify and support that system? Again, we're not seeing any changes from the leadership to say, well, let's get it up to 45 minutes. Don't we want the ball to be in play? Isn't that the object of the game? The play. Mm. And it's it's just, and you've got a lot of old coaches, really renowned world coaches around the world, and players calling for it. Andrew Mertens from New Zealand, the great ten from New Zealand who lives in Australia, commentates in New Zealand on Australian rugby now, has been absolutely nonstop saying the same things I'm saying. All around the world, people are saying this. It's just nothing is getting done about it, and it is incredibly frustrating. <laughs> Uh, change attack then, totally. Uh, we haven't touched too much on the um, radio show. I know OTBAM did a piece, but um, Worcester into administration, which is uh, very interesting and catches the eye, to say the least, suspended from all competition. So uh, for years, Cecil Duckworth would have been the local businessman and pumped his own money in. It was kind of like that Premier League model from 30, 40 years ago almost. And there have been different consortiums since. And then the most recent owners... Uh, effectively seem to have run the club into the ground is the accusation. They have debts of 25 million, including 6 million in tax. Uh, they've made a deal relating to the land and the car park next to the stadium, which, um, you know, is, again, the accusations have been almost of asset stripping. So they're in a terrible uh, situation, Worcester. And Wasps equally need funds urgently. They have a big bill that the HMRC has come looking for and they're looking at appointing administrators. And the Premiership CEO has talked about better visibility of club uh, finances and and there's conversations happening about our squad's too big, our salary's too big, are there too many teams, etc. The other side of the ledger book, the likes of Harlequins, Northampton, Leicester, Bristol, Bat do seem to be um, on more solid footing and have very wealthy owners and uh, good crowds. But... um, just uh, curious for your thoughts, because the, the Premiership and the Top 14 model, as opposed to here, and I know you're based in France, obviously, that is based on the wealthy owner keeping the show on the road. And, and post-COVID, uh, certain clubs seem to be uh, hitting a wall. What do you think the general health is, say, across um, the likes of England and uh, France when it comes to the ownership model? Joe, I think the French system... Uh, is is much uh, is funded from a, a much stronger base through TV revenue. Um, the the deal that the top fourteen or, or not the the top fourteen but uh, LNR the, the the league national did with Canal Plus, which for people who don't know Canal Plus, it would be like Sky. It's it's a cable or a satellite uh, uh, service, and they gave them serious wedge. Right. So each club. Got got a, uh, a very good allocation, but that allocation goes right down into the second division. So I think it's around a million euros for a second division club they get out of of, of the TV deal. And there's a number of other deals, a number of other grants uh, that are all linked into into it. Plus, um, this is a lot of this is the the if you had a, if you had a dodgy financial structure, COVID ruptured it. Mm. COVID absolutely smashed it, and that's the problem with with Worcester and I suspect Wasps as well, that they probably could hang on 
if everything went well and no one saw COVID coming, no one planned for it, which you, you can't really blame organisations. No one in the world saw it coming, mm. but they haven't been able to recover. I do believe that the English Premiership uh, is, is – and the English will not admit this – the numbers at games and so on compared to what's happening in France here in the top 14, it, it's it's a it's a tier below. The numbers at the top 14 are quite extraordinary. Um, the game at the top level in France is booming and uh, they do have wealthy uh, people running it, but also the, the clubs are exceptionally, generally well run and they their revenue streams are very strong. I've always suspected about the premiership how do they keep going at at the numbers that they quite often get to the games and the 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 um, wages they're paying? Like yes. some of the wages you hear that are paying, going, "Wow, really? How are you paying for that? Where does that come from?" Uh, again, the system in France, um, which is is ruthless. At the end of the year, everyone has to show the books, and if you don't, if your books aren't balanced by one euro, you're out. You're out of the competition. So a lot of clubs. Um, let me let me rephrase that. A number of clubs over the years have faced relegation, especially from second division, because of their financial um, dealings have been have been out of order, and this forces clubs to balance their books. So that it makes them, you know, it, it bite the bullet. So they can never get to the point like Worcester, where their revenues there's so much money owed that they collapse. Each year you've got to put in what your revenue is, what's your income, and what's your outgoing. And if, you, if they're not adding up, you have to front up a board and unless you can prove, they give you a certain amount of time to fix it up and if not, you get relegated. So the great foregone club were in um, uh, the Heineken Cup one year and were relegated to the Federale, which is third division, the next year because their books were out. That was a number of years ago, but that's just an example of what they do. Now, uh, I'm in Narbonne. I still help with the, with, the, with the academies and do a bit of coaching here around there, and that, I know that that's a fact each year that the owners and all the presidents of the clubs who are technically the owners face that, that uh, scrutiny, and I think it's a very healthy scrutiny. Yeah, very good. And uh, just one last one. So do you know then, is it allowed, for instance, say a, a French club is running at a big loss, the authorities have no problem if the president is a wealthy owner and says, OK, well, I just covered that loss and so we're back to being all square. There's no pressure to be self-sustaining. As far as I know, Joe, and I, I haven't personally experienced that. I haven't like, been in a room and had that conversation. I have it from other people. that, that they're, they're very relaxed. The point is you can't carry debt. OK. You can't carry debt so that that owner in five years' time says, oh, listen, I was, I, was, I was good for it, but now I'm not. Yes. So all of a sudden the club owes 50 Gs or 50 million. That can't happen. And so they don't care where the revenue comes from as far as I'm aware mm-hmm. as long as the revenue turns up. And, and therefore your club – so a lot of this too, John, there's, yeah, there's a really good thing about French rugby. See, each of these clubs have junior clubs that go down below them and academies and all this sort of stuff. So this is not just – a lot of this is to protect – the rugby system that starts at sevens and moves all the way up to under 23s or the espoir, as they call them, the hopefuls, which is the, all the levels below the top professional team, be it in, in top 14 or, or pro deux or even in the federales in the National League. So it, it is a system based to protect the game in those regions. Mm. And so it has, the, you know, and any system in rugby that has puts the game first tends to work. It's when you put the club first or the individual or the team 
that's where you get failure. And unfortunately, that's seems appears to what has happened in uh, in Worcester, which is very sad because it's um, you know there's a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices for many many years mm. to keep the the dream of Worcester alive, and that's uh, that's quite sad that it's happened like that. Right. Very interesting. I should say for the listener, we gave you no indication whatsoever what we were going to be talking to you about. And here you are just like chapter and verse word perfect on all of these kind of things. It's it's, uh, it's impressive. It's impressive. Um, are you watch- I've been practicing in the front of the mirror since you've been away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, have you watched much URC over the opening two weekends? I have, mate. I've, watched, I've tried to. Um, some of the games have been hard to watch. It's been, wow, that uh, Munster Dragons game. Yeah. Wow, I, I was just what's I just watched the highlights just before we came yeah, on, just yeah. to refresh my mind. If you watch this, there's a seven-minute highlight package on YouTube. I was just going through it again to get the names in case you asked me a tough question. And I, I got it written down here. It, 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 was, it was at the 30-minute mark of the game in the highlights till we saw someone pass the ball. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was it was pretty dire. Dragons are in disarray given their coaching situation and, and, and uh, Dean Ryan's departure. And then I suppose what makes it particularly disappointing from a Munster point of view is that given the opening weekend in Cardiff and new management and some of the big names back, you would have presumed, well, here comes the backlash. You know, that's almost the, the worst aspect of the 23-17 defeat. And Graeme Rowntree was talking today to the press and he's... Uh, said they had a very honest review and again look he said I'm not worried I've been around I've seen lots of pre-seasons lots of training environments I have absolute belief in what we have done and it's going to come out in the game on Friday and, and beyond is his point and even he mentioned the 13 handling errors and the, the numerous turnovers at uh, breakdown and, and really right across the board nothing was very good about that Munster performance how uh, worried should Munster fans be? Well I'll just start by saying Joe but Rodney Parade, which is the ground they played at in Newport, a quarter full on a Sunday afternoon. And a lot of, a lot of the last time those guys played was in New Zealand in a test match or against the Maori. You know, like the best way to view Rodney Parade is in your mirror, rear view mirror as you're driving out of the place. Like it is, it's got no atmosphere. It's, it's, a, it's a horrific, hor- with a quarter full, it's a horrific joint. I've been there with the Waratahs, Leinster and Ulster. And when it's full, it's a great joint. Wow, Sunday, dreary Sunday afternoon with no one in the place. And that's no excuse. They're professional players and Munster were really poor. Look, I, I just think it's – Munster, to me, look like – they've got new coaches in right across the board. They look like a team that's just trying to settle into new systems, new ideas, and they're more worried about those systems than the actual detail. And, you know, the last try where, where they just let a winger come, come in, completely miss a tackle and go straight through, that, that's detail. And, and until they get a little bit more comfortable, they can, they're not worried about what, what they got, where they've got to be. They're actually into the detail of what's at the ruck, where is my hands, what am I doing. That's when we'll see the best of months. And, and I, I agree with uh, what Graham said to an extent. Like, let's, let's not, it's no panic. It's awful. It's horrible. And the, the, I really feel for the coaching staff because it just puts pressure back on them at the beginning of their tenure, um, which they don't – no one really wants. But mm-hmm. you, that's what happens if you lose two games – to Welsh teams away, which everyone expected to win. Cardiff, I think, was different. I looked at that Cardiff team and I thought they were going to give me a bit of trouble. That's you know, Liam Williams in unfortunately got injured. You know, Falatau's turned up. Uh, you know, there's a few. That bench was much stronger, and and you've got Di Young, who's the the director of rugby there, who's really settled into his first year after a good off season. He was there before, but he, he's a Di's a really good human being and a, and a, a fabulous 
fabulous uh, rugby guy yeah. knows the game inside out. They were going to be better. But uh, that Newport was a bad one. But if I was Munster, Munster supporters, I, I would be pretty relaxed for the time being. Right. And is the detail that they're trying to put into action so different as to last year that it explains the mistakes and the sloppiness? Oh, Joe, really, no. Um, you know, you just don't expect that sloppiness. Like professional rugby players on an artificial pitch on a dry day dropping dropping what thirteen balls. No, no one expects that, mm. and that's not as not acceptable standards from from the Munster players, and they would do that. That that's got nothing to do with coaching. That's the boys. Yeah. But what I'm suggesting is, um, with with a new coaches and new systems, players get have to learn new things, and while they're still learning, they they're not comfortable being in that environment. Where you look at Leinster, uh, and, and I don't mean to use Leinster to rub it into Munster noses, I'm just saying that you know, the business as usual, let's get on with it, we're just doing the same things. They, they are much more comfortable in their detail and the way they're rolling along and what they're doing. Changing people around doesn't seem to affect them. That's because their systems haven't changed, where Munster's systems have radically changed, I would suspect, and, and they needed to, and I don't think that's a bad thing. But that takes time to bet in. Okay. I know you watch events at Leinster, obviously, very closely, and Stuart Lancaster has confirmed his departure. So in terms of finding a replacement, let's assume uh, Leo Cullen once again signs another one-year extension, which has been the way he's tended to operate of late. Quite a specific uh, target for the new Leinster CEO to find, because one, you need someone of the quality of Lancaster, but then also you need somebody who's quite happy to go in under Cullen the way Lancaster was. And I, I, I... I don't think there's a you know ever never ending list of people who fit that profile. No, there's not. Um, certainly, Wayne Smith was was one I thought of. Um, Wayne, I, I coached against Wayne for years. He's yeah, known very well. He's a great bloke. They call, they call him Yoda in in, uh, in New Zealand because he knows everything. He's the wise one coaching in New Zealand. I don't know if he wants to go over. I, I don't, I, I'm pretty certain he, he coached at Northampton. Uh, when I, we used to catch up for coffee all the time, he, and he's just a, his knowledge is phenomenal. He's a great guy. He'd, he'd be the perfect fit for Leinster, but I don't know if he would want to do it. But coming back to Stuart's role, but what I think this is, Stuart has done a phenomenal job and will be greatly missed. So that, there's no two ways about that. He's been a sensational asset for the club, and and you, you know yourself when we talk with Rob Carney and any of the former players, they have nothing but praise and admiration for his knowledge, his wisdom, and his, and his teaching ability as a coach. So the, Stuart, Stuart goes brilliantly out the door. Let's go back, though. When Leo signed him, everyone thought, he's just failed with England. Mm. What, what are we signing him as an assistant for? Everyone ridiculed the appointment. So Leo, what, Leo was brilliant at that appointment. What I think the opportunity provides as the year goes on, like Stuart's there for another nine, ten months, and, and let's hopefully they've got some silverware to send him out, I think Stewart's role should be split. He does defence and attack, and I think that's too big. And I think that this, this is your opportunity to bring in a specialist defence coach for Leinster, which I've felt the role has been too big for Stewart for a few years. Not that he's done it poorly in any way. I'm, I'm not criticising. I just think the role is too too expansive for mm. one person mm. is the way the modern game is. And then that allows you to bring in a specialist attack coach. So, again, I think there is a chance for renewal uh, and change a new voice because Leo's structure, and I think it's a brilliant structure, I've seen other people do it, he's, he's like a director of rugby, a DOR, and he empowers his staff to deliver the message. Zero wrong with that system. Zero, because it's delivering. And that's Leo's comfortable with it. Rob McQueen's done it. A whole lot of other coaches that have been successful over the years 
follow that model and I've got no problems with it. This allows a new set of voices to come in. So I think Leo will turn the negative into a positive and I think they'll take a lot of time to um, to sift through some elite guys at World Rugby that will uh, across World Rugby that will fit that uh, that profile. Yeah. But I agree with you, Joe. There's not not a lot of no. And I guess well, look, time is on their side, and uh, you know it's a manner befitting the very respectful nature of the relationship Lancaster and Leinster have had. That it's been upfront. The racing thing hasn't dragged on too long. It's been agreed, and they have time to get a replacement. So you know it's 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 as it's as good a parting as you can have, maybe in these scenarios. Just uh, one last thought. We'll see Leinster and Ulster on Friday night and that'll be a really good game so we'll get a good sense yeah. of where they both are and, and talk about that in due course. Did you see Bundiaki's red card? I did. So you would, like, uh, you know, one of the reasons I love, I love picking your brain is you've you've been uh, coaching the game longer than I've been alive so you've seen all the rule changes and, and the different iterations because I was reading, so Bundiak is going to get his ban and he was off his feet and it was a red card and, and he didn't help himself afterwards remonstrating with the referee and that's all taken as red. But, um, Senatla, the player who was um, exposed and got the, the bang, is out, I think, for four to six months. You know, it's, it's uh, paying a heavy toll. Is there anything we can do in the rules uh, to, to maintain that the, the fight at the breakdown, which is so you know, engaging at times when we're watching a good game, but that protects that player who's gone in over a ball and is often just there exposed and waiting for the hit and is hoping that the player in Bundiaki's position doesn't do a number on him? Yeah. Uh, Joe, all of this, this is, this is, we were criticizing world rugby's lawmakers before. All this, what we, we saw with, with Bundiaki's uh, red card was created under the law of unintended consequences when for reasons that they thought were good, they took rucking out of the game. Now, when rucking was in the game, you got scratched and stood on. There's no yes. two ways about that. And the optics, the optics of shoeing, even as a kid, I remember looking at it going, my goodness, this doesn't look right. Yeah, it's, um, let me tell you, when, you, when you're lying on the ground, it doesn't look particularly <laughs> good either. But if you ask any, you know, and I have done this, you know, people like Paul Wallace and, and I know Keith would go off and I ask Keith and I've heard him, yeah. you know, chats on this. And sorry, Matt, when, when did that go for, for, for the, oh, just remind well, us? I, I want to say it was finally out of the game about the 2003 World Cup. Okay. About the 2003 okay. World Cup. Um, I, and I know this because when I was coaching Scotland, um, in in Australia in 2004, I think it was 2005. We played Australia in two tests in in uh, in Australia and in Melbourne. Stuart Grimes, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the scenario. The game's almost over. We're a couple of tries down. We're trying to go. And Phil War, the great Australian open side flanker, as brave as all get out, rolls over on our side to lock the ball up, which is what the great sevens did. Mm. And so they exposed their back to get rucked rather than let the ball go out. It, it was brave, but also negative. It, 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 and so, so Stuart comes in and rucks him. He didn't kick him. He did, it wasn't particularly bad. It was a couple of strips. Referee blew his whistle, said, well, let's all relax for a minute. That, that's okay. It didn't even penalise him. I got a phone call that night about 1 a.m. Stuart's been um, uh, cited. And I said, Stuart, what did Stuart do? I can't remember him doing anything wrong. And they showed me. I th- and I thought of that, so I surely not. And they saw it, and I, I bumped into the siding official the next day in the hotel lift, and I said, well, what's going on with Stuart? And he told me, he said, we want to take Rucking out of the game. He's going to get banned. Plan to be without him next week. Mm. Um, and that was, he shouldn't have said that, but that was him being a nice guy and giving me the heads up. And I said, why are they banning us? They've taken Rucking out of the game. So the judiciary took it out rather than 
the legislators. Mm. So this was judiciary acting. So what happened was they stopped rucking, and that's why we got what we got. So the only and, – and I, I disagree with what, what Bundy said, but what he was saying was true. Where do you expect me to go? Where's, where can I attack that guy? He's in that position. Anywhere I go, I'm going to hit him. In the, now, Bundy should not have hit him in his head, in the head he should, and, and therefore the decision, why the red card, I, I come into this, it's going to be dangerous, I have to decide to not go into it. Now, in, in the heat of battle with these guys that are highly competitive at the stage and the level they're at, they don't make that decision. They just go in and you get what we've got. But you, the, let's come back to the point. Yeah. Would you rather have some scratches on you where you've got to get some antiseptic wiped on with a cotton bud or would you rather have your head smacked the way the way the South African player did? That's a no-brainer for me. And, and how would the shoeing work in that moment where there's a contest? Well, well we, we, you just what, here's the other beauty: you have to content, commit more people to the ruck. So instead of stopping to put your hands on the ball, he gets past the ball. So once he's past the ball, the ball's technically on his side of the ruck. Yeah. So the 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 the, the, the uh, Connacht guys are offside. Now Bundy could come in and wrestle him and move him and try and get back to it, but. If you take the the ability of the player or the or the or the right of the player to put his hands on the ball, so you've got to get past the ball, that changes the whole dynamics of the ruck. So therefore, the defending side and the attacking side would have to commit three or four more players to the ruck, which is less defenders, less attackers, more space. And who? So where, where where would the shoeing come in? Um, the 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 old shoeing. The old shoeing is coming. I'm having some flashbacks here. The old shoeing, the old shoeing came in. There was that you could push the ball back. Yeah. With your feet, and if there was a player in the road, you could push him back as well. Okay. You couldn't push your feet forward, so you couldn't reach forward. You had to get past him and push back. And I, I, I was getting ruck one day against Ramwick. I'll never forget. And I looked up at the referee, and he just looked at me and said, "You know the rules, champ. Get out." <laughs> <laughs> now, now, none of it. Now, if you, if you, if obviously people got, you know, there, there were things that were wrong with that. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. But I would much prefer to have a scratch than have, you know, guys are blowing knees, they're blowing ankles, they get neck injuries, they get they get shoulder injuries, the, the impact to their heads. You know, it, it is again the law of under, unintended consequences smashing in. And it, but it, it, once again, there have been a number of of really high-profile groups look at this and make recommendations to World Rugby, and those recommendations have either been ignored or not acted on. Uh, and and we, we still have the problem of, of trying to protect the player from head injury, which is absolutely correct, mm. and the problem that we're not doing it. We're not protecting them. We give them red cards out at a rate that the game has never seen, but we're not protecting people. Mm. Our uh, rugby coverage off the ball is with thanks to Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Matt, that was super. Thank you so much. Chat again soon. Pleasure, Jack. Great to talk to you, mate. Wednesday Night Rugby on Off the Ball with Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us.